Aban Usman says, he writes, I grew up in a Muslim family on the coast of Kenya. We were Somali Kenyans. My father served as an imam and I was one of the muezzins, the, the, the people who call others to pray five times a day at the local mosque. The only school I ever attended was a madrasa that existed to educate young men in the ways of Islam and to help them grow as good Muslims. I was being trained to defend the Muslim faith and to share it with others. As a young man, I became one of the best and, and most well-known missionaries for Islam in my region. Early in life, my father had taught me to, to hate Christians and even to beat them if necessary. I was trained to believe that Christians were on the same level as animals. We were not allowed to associate with them in any way. This isn't classical Islam, but that's what his family believed. One day in 2009, started out just like any other. I woke up and went to the local mosque to start calling people to pray. I was set to recite the Adnan, the, the Muslim call to prayer, into the microphone so that my call could be heard throughout the city. But when I tried to speak, nothing came out. Leaving the mosque, I saw my friend Ali in the street, and I tried to explain what had happened, but he wouldn't believe me. We went back to the mosque where I stepped up to the microphone and attempted to call out the Adhan once more, but again, my voice would not come out. Ali was as surprised as I was. We were both nervous. What did this mean? But, but he took over my duties so that I could go home for the day. And when I got home, I tried to relax and calm my mind. My heart was heavy and I felt troubled. I went to my kitchen. I grabbed the thermos and started to make hot tea. I poured the tea into a mug and I was about to start drinking when I, I looked at it and it appeared to be red, like red like blood. You can only imagine the thoughts that might go through a young man's mind at that point. Had God rejected him and turned against him? Or was he losing his mind? Was he hallucinating? As a devout follower of Islam in a family line of Muslim leaders, he had failed in his duty as a muezzin, and his tea seemed to transform into something unclean. Such experiences would bring shame on him. He was a religious man. He was deeply troubled, and he was searching for answers. And he would find the answer he sought. But for him, it would be very costly. We read in the Gospels about words spoken about Jesus shortly after his birth that 2,000 years later would give a great deal of understanding to this young Somali Muslim. We're going to read Luke chapter 2, the Gospel according to Luke, beginning in verse 25. This is the Gospel. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents brought the child Jesus 
to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What do we see here in these words of Simeon the prophet? We see for once the coming of God's peace. What was it that Simeon had been waiting for? He had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation is, is the comfort you give to those that are grieving, who are, who, are, who are living a difficult life and a hardship. You all know what that looks like. You all have, have lost people that you have loved. You've lost pets that you've loved. You've seen things happen to people you love. You've, seen, you've experienced abuse yourself. You know what this is like. And he's waiting for the consolation when all will be made right, when Israel will be restored, when comfort will come from God. Israel's consolation had been a major theme in the Hebrew scriptures, in Jewish prophecy, and especially nowhere else more than in the book of Consolation, which is the chapters in Isaiah at the end from Isaiah 40 to chapter 66. In Isaiah 40, God had begun to comfort his people at this point, envisioning them, you know, uh, uh, exiled in Babylon because of their sin and the sins of their fathers. They knew they were guilty. And here is the word that the Lord gives to them. He speaks comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness the highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Later rabbis would refer to the Messiah or the Christ to come. Spoken of here in Isaiah as the comforter. Because they saw in him the one who would bring this consolation, this comfort. Most often in the scriptures, it was the servant of God spoken of in Isaiah who would be God's agent in bringing consolation, the suffering servant from the prophecies of old. And this longing for the world's healing and the people's redemption is powerfully present within our own human psyche. We all feel it every day at some point. The thought goes through your heart, whether it bypasses the brain or not, that this is wrong, that this shouldn't be, that that's unfair, 
because we all have this universal human sense of oughtness, that things ought to be a certain way and that they are not. And Christianity explains that because we were made good image bearers of God in a world that was very good, but then our first parents turned against God and the whole world became fallen and much less than was intended and suffering and pain and sickness and death became things that plagued humanity as our relationship with God was broken. But even in all of that, we still see and hear these echoes of Eden, of what ought to have been, and we feel it. There is goodness, there is justice, there is kindness. These are not just human constructions and they are objectively good because God has made them to be good. Otherwise, it's all meaningless. It's like Samuel Beckett's uh, uh, play, Waiting for Godot, where, where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are, are having a conversation and then and the, the refrain goes again and again. You probably memorized it in high school. Let's go. We can't. Why not? We're waiting for Godot. Ah. Let's go. We can't. Why not? We're waiting for Godot. Ah. Uh, it's placed there as a responsive reading. Godot being perhaps God. And their point is that they're waiting for something that's never going to happen because there really is no meaning, because there really is no God, because we're just here waiting as if something's supposed to happen, and it doesn't. But within the Jewish prophecies, they said that God would come, that goodness and truth are real, and God will visit humanity. And here Simeon is declaring that Jesus is the one we waited for all that time. Jesus is the one we were waiting for, and he has come, and consolation that he brings would bring peace. He, it's amazing. Simeon, he, he picks up this, this child, and he says, Lord, now dismiss your servant in peace. In peace, in Irene, in, in, in the Greek, which is used for the Hebrew shalom, that universal flourishing that the Jewish people longed for when God and humanity and the created world would again be restored and made right with one another in love and justice and peace and goodness. That shalom of God is coming in this child. That, that salvation came in the form not of a plan but of a person. We read it had been revealed to Simeon by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Christ. And he sees Jesus, he picks him up, says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus was, is the salvation. Jesus is the peace. Jesus is the comfort. Jesus is the consolation. Jesus is, it's all a person. Christianity is not a doctrinal system with an ethical system attached to it. It is a person living, alive and at large, resurrected, ascended to heaven and coming back at the end of history who is actively working in people's lives now. Here Simeon the prophet is holding up Jesus and declaring that the Savior King prophesied of old, the one spoken of in Isaiah the prophet, in the book of consolation, has come. His eyes have seen salvation. And he's doing this. Did you notice in the temple courts? 
for religious Jews, there could be no more solemn or holy location where this declaration could take place. I mean, don't miss the significance of what's happening here. I mean, how many of you have seen the original, you know, the original Lion King? You know, the, the one that made you cry, I know. Um, it's all about Simba, you know, son of, who's the son of a king. And, uh, and, and in the opening scene, there's this long-awaited announcement of Simba's birth, the newborn king. He's carried throughout the valleys. This, 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 this announcement is carried throughout the valleys and the plateaus of Africa. Tribal drums and African chants herald the cubs' arrival. Elephants and gazelles and antelopes and vultures and zebras and giraffes and gulls and even tiny little ants journey to receive the new royalty. They climb hills, they descend sloping canyons, forge streams and hike jungle paths, and once all the animals arrive in adoring reverence and praise, the infant cub is presented to the gathered subjects. Rafiki, the monkey elder, lifts the newborn high above his head to symbolize Simba's exalted calling. And that, friends, is what Simeon has just done with Jesus, the newborn king. The infant, exalted as the Christ, the savior king. First, the angels bowed down and worshiped and proclaimed the glory of Jesus. And then the shepherds worshiped. And now the prophet within the courts of the house of God is raising up this child as the eternal king of salvation and consolation of Israel. Simeon is a sentinel whose job is to announce the appearing of this great star in the world as one has spoken. With his task performed, he's then ready to go do whatever God wants. Here Simeon, the prophet, lifts the newborn Jesus high above his head and says, salvation has now come in this man who is in his body, peace itself. That peace, that peace comes through conflict, he says. Simeon says that many will believe Jesus and many will not believe Jesus. He says it fits that many Gentiles are going to believe Jesus. He, he says that this child is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. So, so that means that there are people who, who they were rejecting as unsaved, as unsavable pretty much unless they convert uh, the whole rest of the world that was not Jewish. You know, they were lost. And, and here they're being told, Joseph and Mary are being told that, that their child is the one who will bring in all the other peoples of the earth to come and worship from, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And yet he'll also be spoken against, as, as, as we'll look at later. Um, you know, in Luke 13, there's a passage where um, Jesus talks about the coming banquet, the, 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 the banquet of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb of God at the end of, of this age. And he says, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the Jewish patriarchs, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself are thrown out. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south. Those are unclean peoples. Those are Gentiles. And they will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. So many are going to follow Jesus from all around the world, but many are also going to oppose Jesus. He says, Simeon says, this child is destined 
could cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Rising up some, but causing others to fall and to be a sign that will be spoken against. There will be people who will be against Jesus. They will resent him. They will speak against him. They will oppose him. They will refuse to follow him. And we moderns have tried to get around this um, by imagining you know, Jesus to be just kind of a, a good moral teacher, sort of like a, a, a Mr. Rogers figure who um, is non-threatening and doesn't say crazy stuff. Um, but C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity stresses that that's not a, a, a tangible, that's not, a, that's not a, a logical option. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You can make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then inaction is a failure to revere him and follow him, and it is itself opposition to Jesus. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, he says, because many will believe in Jesus, but many others will oppose him. This Jesus has therefore become the dividing line of humanity. Simeon says this child is destined to cause the falling and rising and a sign to be spoken against. From the time Jesus is declared the Son of God, all of humanity, all image bearers of God affected by the fall are going to fall on one side of Jesus or on the other. He is the dividing line. One constant theme in Jesus' ministry is that it divides people into two groups. In Luke 4, you've got the townsfolk trying to throw him off a cliff. In Luke 19, you have religious leaders, pastors, conspiring to kill Jesus. And at the same time, you have Jesus blessing his disciples, saying that, that, that their spiritual bankruptcy means that they're blessed. Again, Jesus again and again divides humanity into two. There are the sheep, he says, and the goats. There's the wheat and there's the tares. There's the rich man, and there's Lazarus. There are the Pharisees, and there's the tax collector. Jesus becomes that dividing line of humanity. Jesus said in Luke 12, Do you think I came to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against the other. There will be three and two, and two and three. Because in bringing his peace, it's a peace that creates conflict in that dividing line over Jesus. Even in 49 AD, Roman historical accounts uh, tell us that, that, that the Jewish population of Rome was expelled from the city because there was such conflict within the Jewish community in Rome over a figure named Crestus, which is a variant spelling of Christ. They were doing exactly what Jesus said. 
three in one family against two, two against three. And note that this is not a conflict between religious people and irreligious people, because Jesus' worst critics were religious people, religious leaders. He said you could travel over land and sea to win a single convert and then make them twice the child of hell you are yourselves. He talked about those who tithe their mint and cumin, their kitchen spices, they're such good tithers, but they neglect the weightier matters of the law, like love and justice and mercy. Jesus said of them, they search the scriptures that, because they think that by them they possess eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me. He said they love to pray in the temple courts, but their hearts already have their reward. Remember, there are always two ways to be damned, two ways to be lost. You can be damned because of your unrighteous, sinful lifestyle. Um, we all observe that. But you can also be damned by your righteousness. Remember, that was Jesus' point in telling us the parable of, of the prodigal son, which is really about the elder son, the parable of the two sons. The one son, he, he younger son, he wanted his third of the inheritance, which was his by right, but, be, but he wanted it now, which is kind of like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Could you just pay me off now so I can go away from you? And he did, and it, it didn't go well. You know, he came back, you know, penniless, starving with sores all over his body, and, you know, his dad then comes and embraces him and, 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 and puts a, a ring on his finger and a cloak on his back and slays the fatty calf and they have a big celebration. And the elder brother, who was the good brother, he was on the outside in the fields and when he heard the music, he came and asked, hey, what's going on here? Oh, your, your little brother came back and, and there's a celebration at a party and they they've slayed the fatty calf and he refused to go into the celebration. He refused to enter the kingdom, the celebration of God's grace. Why? Because he told his father, all these years I slaved for you, and you never rewarded me. It was his righteousness that kept him out of the kingdom. Which side are you on? You know, the question, Jesus of Nazareth has been revealed as Savior, as Christ as consolation, as salvation itself. The Lord's prophet Simeon has declared him to be so within the courts of the temple of the Lord. Which side of Jesus are you on? It is possible to fake it your entire life. You can be religious and do church stuff, but does he have lordship over your heart? Does he have claim to every area of your life? Is he your savior functionally in every sense? Are you resting upon his grace, trusting in his grace, and looking to his grace to follow him faithfully? Because there is a peace here. He is the dividing line of history, but there's a peace here that comes through conflict. And it's a conflict that's brought about by the self-giving love of this very same Jesus. What did Simeon prophesy about Mary? You know, after he'd held up and prophesied about Jesus, he then turned to Mary. It's a parenthetical thought. It's, oh, by the way, a sword will pierce your soul too. The word used for sword was for the long, straight, broad sword that would puncture straight through the torso. What was the sword? What suffering would come Mary's way on account of of her son being the savior of Israel. Think of all the sorrow that might have. We can speculate about the difficulty of having Jesus as your child. 
we see the prophecy already begin to find fulfillment later in this chapter when Mary and Joseph lose Jesus and they're, they're freaking out. They can't understand how we, he would be so disrespectful as to, to leave them behind in a crowd. And they're, they're going everywhere and they're freaking out. And it's, it's some, some of you are, are parents and you know what it's like to lose a child in a crowd. And then they eventually find him at the temple. And imagine your child looking at you with absolute bewilderment, bewilderment saying, you should have known I'd be in my father's house. <laughs> Think about when Jesus was teaching, and the convention was that if your mother or brothers came, you stopped teaching and went to address them because it was an honor-based culture in which you owed that to them. And, and Jesus is teaching, and they come and say, oh, Lord, your mother and brothers are here, and he keeps teaching. And he says, uh, now let, me, let me redefine family for you. Who are my mother and father and sons and brothers, but you who do the will of my father in heaven? The church becomes the ultimate family. That's the priority. And I'll go take care of my mom later. Um, how would that have sounded in her ears at the time? Um, you know, we can't really know. But, uh, but there's something more here. Um, because there is a deeper loss that Mary is going to have to experience. Her son Jesus would give his life for the salvation of all. I have looked into the eyes of parents who have lost a child. There is nothing more horrifying that a parent could face. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Your own soul too your own soul as well. You are going to suffer for having this child, he tells her. Suffer the greatest suffering any parent can experience to watch their child stripped and beaten publicly, humiliated and shamed, uh, tortured in the worst way that Roman torturers could do, and then nailed to a cross to die slowly by asphyxiation in public shame and disgrace. That would be a sword that would pierce Mary's heart. But he says, Simeon says, your heart too. Because there's another sword. The sword that Jesus himself will run into. The Jesus that Jesus himself will experience upon the cross. What was the sword that Jesus would experience? We see in Galatians, in the creation account, this that God dwells in paradise. It was a world in which everything was right. We were there with knowledge and holiness and righteousness and love and justice and, and, and could walk around naked because we had no shame because that world was a world in which there was nothing wrong with us. We weren't damaged. And so we had nothing to be ashamed of. But then when we turned from him, we were expelled from the garden and all of us are born outside of that garden, east of Eden. You know, all of us are born fallen and guilty with no hope unless something happens because between because guarding the gate the approach to the garden of eden the approach to god god placed a cherubim that's a fierce mighty terrifying angel and the angel held a flaming sword fire shooting up from it and it turned around in every direction so that no one could ever from that point forward ever see the face of god 
No one would ever be able to enter paradise. No one would ever be able to enter into relationship with God or walk with him in the garden again. We would be exiles. We would be cut off. We would be lost, separated from God, separated from his life and hope and eternity. And Jesus, in going to the cross, walked right in to that flaming sword and took our punishment for us. He took the full brunt of all of the sin for all of humanity, all of his people, throughout time, on the cross, running into that sword and let it destroy him so that we could then have access back into the garden of God. It was at the moment that Jesus died and gave up his spirit that the, the curtain in the Holy of Holies, separating the presence of God in the most holy place of the temple from the rest of the temple complex, the space that no one could ever walk into without dying. That curtain separating us from God was torn into, opening the way back into the garden, opening the way to consolation, to salvation, to relationship with God. It's peace that comes through conflict. But Jesus took the greatest of the conflicts for our sake, our conflict with God, and dealt with it so that you who are in Christ now have his peace. Aban Usman had failed as a muezzin in his Muslim duty. He had disappointed his father. He had seemingly hallucinated and seen his tea turn blood red. He explains what happened next. He says, I left the tea on the counter and I took a walk, hoping to clear my mind after a day full of seemingly crazy events. During my walk, I came to a marketplace where a large crowd had gathered around the, the back of a pickup truck. Getting close enough to hear and see what was going on, I listened as some Christians were preaching. The preacher was clearly a Kenyan, just like me, and not someone who had come here from the Western world. I was skeptical. I kept my distance, but I did listen to what he was saying. After the man had finished preaching, I felt compelled to approach him because I was known very well in that area. The, the other Christians who were with him, who were also Kenyan, initially blocked me from coming forward. But the missionary, the, the, the guy speaking, allowed me to talk with him. And he shared the gospel of Jesus with me. And right then and there, everything seemed different. I saw everything that had happened during that day in a new light. I knew that God was the one who wouldn't let my voice come out when I was calling the people to Muslim prayer. He was the one who turned my tea blood red as a symbol of Christ's blood spilled on the cross for me. And the Holy Spirit changed my heart and I gave my life to Jesus. This, this Christian told me to go tell my family what had happened. And I did as he requested, even though I knew my father would not like it. And sure enough, my father, uh, my father said that my conversion was an abandonment of Islam and an act of personal betrayal to him and to the family. He called my uncle, a well-respected leader in the Muslim community, to ask for advice on how to handle this crisis. My uncle recommended having me excommunicated, cast out, but my father was in no mood for half measures. He wanted me dead. He ordered me to get out of the house right away. I wasn't even allowed to take 
a moment to gather my belongings. I found the Christians who had shared Jesus with me, figuring I would stay the night with them before leaving the next morning, but soon we heard that my father had sent people out looking for me, people who would kill me if they found me. So that night at 3 a.m., these Christians escorted me out, out of my hometown to a city that was eight hours away where they took me in and they taught me more about Jesus and showed me how to read his word and to walk with him. Over the years, he continues, I continued to travel and visit different churches under the support of the National Missionary Organization that, that had aided me at the time of my Christian conversion. Uh, I would preach from church to church and tell others about Jesus. And in April of 2017, I took a new step of boldness. Alongside one of my own disciples that I was training, I journeyed to a city close to the border with Somalia, where the population consists mostly of Somalis like me, members of my own ethnic group. I had ventured there to do what God had put in my heart so many years ago. I wanted to share Christ with Muslims in my own homeland, people of my own tribal group. We had planned out a four-day trip. On the first day, as I started to preach and share about Jesus, a crowd gathered. And as I continued to speak, the crowd became angry. And a few people complained to the police that I was causing trouble. The police arrested me and took me to jail. I was punched. I was kicked by the other cellmates and also by the corrupt police officers. I learned that the man I had been discipling had left and returned home in fear, but I continued to talk about Christ, and ten Somalis in that jail came to know Jesus before I got out. On the fourth day when I was released, I, I walked straight from the jail to the market where I had preached about Jesus, and seven Muslims that day prayed to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. In the Gospels, Jesus tells the crowds, that anyone who would follow him must be prepared to leave everything behind for the sake of carrying the cross. That since becoming a Christian, he writes, I've had many occasions to count the cost of discipleship. On top of having to flee from my home and family, I was forced to part ways with the Muslim woman that I was set to marry. On several occasions, people from the cities I've, I've spoken in have shown up at my home in the middle of the night to threaten me and my family. I have been beaten by crowds five different times. And yet, when I think of even the worst suffering of the slaps and the punches and the kicks I've endured, I still count it all a joy. I'll gladly surrender everything for the cause of Christ to reach my Muslim brothers whom I love. Jesus, the dividing line of history who brings peace, who is himself peace with God and with God with others, but brings peace through conflict. Jesus, who is that peace and the consolation, the comfort of us all. Let's pray.